Good morning, folks. Good morning. Great to uh, see you all here again. We are uh, stepping into our series on Mark again. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to mention that, you know, by any objective measure, any objective measure, Jesus Christ lived one of the most, if not the most, influential life ever lived. Now, of course, here in the church, we would say it was the most influential life ever lived. But it's interesting, uh, though Jesus lived 33 years, it, the, each of the four Gospels spend 24, 25 rather, to 40% of their material, of their account of his life on just one week the week we're about to cover in the book of Mark. In fact, uh, uh, for Mark, the last six of his 16 chapters cover this single week. Why is this? Why so much attention on these eight days? Really, it's eight days, uh, Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I would say it's the most influential, most amazing, most important week ever lived. How's that for a bold claim? But think about what he did in this single week. He came, and as the great prophet who was uh, prophesied by Moses, uh, he taught in the temple courts every day, even though the authorities were out to kill him. He reconstitutes Passover and turns it into the Lord's Supper. His arrest, trial, crucifixion, and death, rather than being uh, a defeat or a derailment of his plan, was actually his method for being victorious. He came to take on sin and take sin out, and he does so at the cross. And he gets that victory by rising again from the dead on that seventh day, Resurrection Sunday. And then, of course, a little later, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, Father Almighty, as King of kings and Lord of lords. But today, uh, we begin with day one, uh, the triumphal entry uh, where Jesus comes and reveals himself to be king. This morning's scripture is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied in a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "'May no one ever eat fruit from you again,' And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's go to God in prayer as we begin to consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for uh, the word that you have given to us and uh, how you have uh, showed us yourself, revealed yourself to us uh, in it. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for it, particularly at this Christmas season uh, when we get to focus on, Lord Jesus, your coming to us as we talk about that in the passage even here today. But Father, as we uh, think about this in this marvelous season, uh, we do it in some ways with heavy hearts as we think about uh, what all is going on in our country these days. Father, how we would pray for a revival. Lord, as we look at uh, what's going on and we see scandals going on among our political leaders and scandals among entertainers and uh, scandals everywhere, and we see the violence and the hatred that's going on, everything from uh, what's going in, on internationally to uh, the racism and hatred that seems everywhere here uh, in our country today. Uh, Father, as we see all that, we want to pray again for revival here. We so need it in our country. Uh, we have turned away from you, King Jesus, and it shows. So, Father, we pray for revival and ask that particularly at this Christmas season that uh, you might use this time to bring many aware of their need for a Savior and turn to you in faith. As much as people try to take Christ out of Christmas, uh, there's still the opportunity where people hear Christmas carols, even in shopping malls, where they hear people saying Merry Christmas to one another. Um, And, Father, it's an opportunity. I pray, Lord, that Uh, We would see many people coming to you even at this time of season and help us to be aware of that. Lord, we need revival too. It's so easy for us. We talk every uh, year at this time about how we're so distracted uh, about Christmas because of the busyness and the shopping and the gifts and the schedules and all the rest. Lord, revive us. Help us to focus on you this season ourselves that we might be more aware of the needs, spiritual needs of people around us and that we might be part of a revival that you would send. So, Lord, help us this time of year uh, to be your representatives, not only across the world, but in this community, the place where you've put us. Help us to encourage one another in that. And now, Lord Jesus, as we consider your coming, uh, not only as a child born in Bethlehem, but as the king who came to Jerusalem, would you be the one who draws us to yourself, who teaches us from your word, and who changes us by that word to be the people you want us to be. Do that, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're back into the uh, book of Mark once again, and in chapter 11, uh, beginning this amazing, uh, look at this amazing week that uh, I was talking about. And uh, there's no better way to get into a sermon than an illustration from Braveheart, right? So, uh, In the movie Braveheart, there's this uh, really cool scene where the Scottish army has taken the field, and they've taken the field and lined up against their English oppressors, the English army, and uh, they're trying to obtain, as we all know if you've seen this movie, their freedom uh, from England. And uh, as the armies are lined up, though, the Scottish lords ride out into the middle of the field and meet with the English representatives. Smelling a sellout, William Wallace spurs his horse. Someone asks him, William, where are you going? And he says, to pick a fight. 
And I wish I could say that with a great Scottish accent, but I just don't have one. But he says, I'm going to pick a fight because he knew that's what it would take for them to get their freedom, and he didn't want the Scottish lords to sell them out. Today, I can't help but believe that Jesus shows up at the doorstep of Jerusalem, and he's there to pick a fight. Now, we don't normally think of Jesus that way, but I think he's announcing himself as the king, and he can't help but do that and pick a fight. I'm not sure we appreciate the audacity of Jesus on this day and what he is doing. Uh, there's a, a picture of it, uh, as you see, also from your uh, bulletin, uh, the cover art there. But for Jesus to do this, he and the whole procession, and, you know, they're, they're a pretty loud procession. You hear uh, them shouting their hosannas and all the rest uh, in uh, verses 9 through 10 there. And if you're in the city of Jerusalem, you can't help but see this. Uh, the Mount of Olives, where they start, is a little hill on the other side of Jerusalem, and they would be going down this mountain, hollering and screaming and shouting hosannas and all the rest, a uh, big crowd of people crossing the Kidron Valley and then up to the city gate of Jerusalem. So it was there in front of God and everybody, as they sometimes say, and he's being received as the king. Now, think about this. Remember the last time one of the kings in Israel heard about the child who was born king. Remember when the wise men showed up in uh, Jerusalem and they're trying to find out where's the child who's born king. King Herod at the time did not particularly like that idea. And what did he do? He had the infants in Bethlehem murdered out of his jealousy. Infants, mind you. Well, here's the grown-up child. In plain view waltzing right up to the city gates of Jerusalem and proclaiming himself to be king. He can't help but be picking a fight. He's grown up there at the capital city. Take that, King Herod, the new King Herod. Take that, Governor Pilate. Take that, ruling council. I'm here as the king, the rightful king. That's audacious. So Jesus has this audacious that we don't often give him credit for, a courage, I could say, you could call it that as well. But what I don't get, what doesn't seem to match that, is how he's doing this riding on, what? A donkey. There's just nothing about a donkey that says picking a fight and uh, audacity, does it? Yet this donkey gets seven verses here in Mark, and he's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. So he must, there must be something important about him. What is it? What's up with this donkey? Well, a couple things about this donkey. First off, it tells us something about the rider, doesn't it? Jesus is riding on a donkey instead of a war horse. In other words, he's coming not to be a tyrant, not to be an oppressor like almost every king throughout history has been, but to be a servant. One of the uh, scriptures that uh, we had for our Advent readings this past week, if you were going through that, was Isaiah 42, verse 3. And it points out about this king, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And as King Jesus himself said, he came not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, verse 45. So it tells us something about the character of this king, but it also does something to prove that this king, uh, that he is a king, and that he has everything going according to his plan. Everything is working out just as this king has planned it. Well, how do we see that? Because of a prophecy from the Old Testament. If you go to the Old Testament book of Zechariah 9.9, we see that everything is indeed going to God, according to God's plan. 
as this verse says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, God had planned this 500 years earlier for this to take place and that the way it would take place is for the expected king to be identified because he's going to be riding on a donkey, humbly in this way. And this is only one part of the plans that God had made that he shows to us. It's kind of interesting. I think you can almost look at prophecies as God's plan book, maybe his plan journal or something, being opened up so we can see what he's going to do. These are his plans, and he's letting us in on his plan. Another piece of this plan is what he reveals in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There he tells David that one of his descendants is going to rule on the throne forever. And Jesus is the son of David, as blind Bartimaeus saw, you know, the blind guy saw, as we saw last week, who Jesus was. He wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. He was Jesus' son of David this king who's been born to come in this way. And consider Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. We quote this all the time at Christmas, right? And rightfully so. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And that's what's about to happen. The government, in a big way, is about to be put on Jesus' shoulders, although in a bigger way even than most folks are expecting. And catch the end of it. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. This is that son of David that God has been planning on, planning for, and let us in on for ages, for centuries, and here he comes. And that donkey tells us, that's one piece of it that tells us that that's who this is. So it tells us a little bit about Jesus' character, donkey, not a war horse, and that, you know, this is part of God's plan, and God's working out everything according to his plan. And one more thing about the donkey. What do you make of how Jesus gets this donkey? Isn't this just a little weird? I mean, Jesus sends two disciples into the village ahead of him. And none of the Gospels mention who these two guys were. I don't know if they were embarrassed or something. They didn't want to know who it was. But anyway, they send, Jesus sends two of the disciples ahead to get this donkey. And he tells them exactly how it's going to play out. And then that's exactly how it plays out. <laughs> Even in the getting of this donkey, Jesus has everything under control. He's got a plan, and he's letting us know ahead of time what it is, and then it's going to work out, and then it does. But what, what do you think, too, about those people who let them take the donkey? I mean, they basically go in there to steal something, right? But Jesus says, but if someone asks you about it, just say the Lord needs it, and... Um, We'll bring it back shortly. I can't help but wonder if it almost was the first Jedi mind trick, though. This is not the donkey that you are looking for. Move along. I don't know. But somehow or other, it works. Jesus has this crazy plan, and it works out. And so this donkey just underscores how Jesus has it all under control. Everything is happening according to plan. Hmm. Everything happening according to plan. You know, don't you wish that that could be true today? Well, isn't it nice that Jesus had all that planned out uh, for, for the triumphal entry and, and uh, everything that was going on there? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was still in control today, that he had a plan that was going on now and that things were still in control now? But don't you look at the headlines and feel like our world has gone out of control? Again, what with all the concerns about nuclear war and terrorism and 
all of that, the scandals, even among our political leaders, much less our entertainers, uh, our world just seems crazy. I would say that uh, our country has uh, uh, rejected God, and it shows, and it shows. And it's very easy to think that God's just left us, and there's no plan that he's not in control anymore. But you might not have to go to the uh, headlines to, to get this sense in your life. It might be that the chaos in your own home, the mess in your own home, or at your job, or maybe even in your own heart, has convinced you that God is nowhere to be seen here, that there's no plan, that he's not in control, and that it's all on your own, and there's no hope. But you know, it all really comes down to where you fix your eyes as to what you see. It comes down to where you fix your eyes uh, to, and that determines what you see. And this is seen all throughout Scripture in so many ways. Think about uh, the children of Israel at uh, the Red Sea. You know, that's a great story. We mostly focus on the parting of the Red Sea, but there was a time where they were stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. Now, they had seen all the miracles that God had performed, all the plagues and everything, and how they had been able to escape, but they escaped and only got so far, and there's the sea, and there's the Egyptian army bearing down on us. What has God done? It would be so easy to believe that God had abandoned you, that he's not in control after all. We thought he was. We've come out here and risked our lives, and now we're about to get killed. But with eyes of faith, you would see that it is simply God setting the stage, working out his plan to deliver his people as he then indeed parted the Red Sea. I can't help but think... um, about the Christmas story, and you think of Caesar Augustus, and you know, he made this decree uh, for everyone to go to their hometown to be taxed, and I can't help but imagine that he felt like, I'm in control of the entire known world, and in a sense, he was, right, because he makes this decree, and everybody has to jump. Little did he know, and little did probably hardly anyone there know at the time, that what was really going on is that God was using him as a tool, because he needed to have his Savior born in Bethlehem. And for that to happen, Mary and Joseph had to go there. And so that was simply God's way, setting the stage, working his plan for his plan to be worked out. Even when Jesus gets arrested, tried, and sentenced to crucifixion by the Jewish and Roman authorities, imagine if you were one of his followers. Maybe you were one of those people who had come down that uh, uh, hill, the, the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, into the city, shouting hosannas. Blind Bartimaeus probably was one of those folks, the 12, any number of other people that we know from the New Testament. And then to see him get arrested and sentenced to be crucified of all things and then to be killed. It would be very easy to think that Jesus, we thought he had control, we thought he had a plan, and it all came apart. But of course, that was simply Jesus setting the stage to pay for our sin, which necessitated his death on the cross, where he there defeated sin and Satan and, and paid for our sins. So it all comes down to where you fix your eyes. If you fix your eyes on the circumstances around you, like Peter did on the waves. You know, he was in a great spot there for a minute. He was walking on water, but when he looked at the circumstances, took his eyes off Jesus and saw the waves, he sank. That's when it certainly felt like he was out of control, that life was out of control. There's no hope. There's no plan. God's nowhere to be seen, but when we fix our eyes on Christ, you may not see the future. You know, whatever it is that's bothering you today, 
Whatever it is that makes you think that the world's out of control, your life is out of control, whatever it is that's making you feel like there's no hope, you need to turn and fix your eyes on Christ and see him as the king. He's still on the throne. That's what was prophesied that a son of David would always have a descendant on the throne. That's Christ. He's on the throne. To see him on that throne, high and lifted up, and all he's doing all the time is setting the stage for the good things he has in store, whatever those might be. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll see the future. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, you'll know how it all is going to work out. But through eyes of faith, you can believe that it will. And that's all that's important. Again, it all comes down to where you fix your eyes. Well, there's one more scene for us to consider here today, and that's uh, Jesus going to the temple. As uh, it says in verse 11, after he had entered into Jerusalem, uh, he made, uh, I don't know if he made a beeline for the temple or not. I don't know, uh, you know, it, it says there that he was hungry and didn't find any figs and all that. Maybe he stopped at the Jerusalem Bojangles or something, I don't know. But one way or another, he eventually makes it to the temple courts. And it says there that uh, in verse 11 that he looked around at everything, so he sees what's happening, but it's late in the day, so he goes home. But then the next day, he comes back, of course, and he ain't happy. Like I was talking about before, he, he came and picked a fight, right? He came to pick a fight, and it seems like that's what's happening here. Why does Jesus go ballistic over this? Why does he respond so strongly? Does he have something against commerce? There's people buying and selling. Does he have something against crowds? Maybe he's an introvert. Did he just get up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? What happened? Maybe he hadn't had his coffee yet or something. What happened? Let's take a step back and think about what Jesus would have seen as he stepped into the temple courts that day. Thousands would have been there because it was the week leading up to Passover. So there are indeed huge crowds of people there, but they're also buying and selling animals for the sacrifice. Many people, and it was allowed in the Old Testament even, that you could uh, bring money and then buy an animal there because if you lived far away especially, that would be hard. It's hard enough to travel there, much less bring an animal with you. So you could purchase an animal there and then have it sacrificed. People from other countries would have been there. And, of course, they have the currency of whatever nation they're from. So they would need, much like at an international airport, to have a currency exchange in order to have the money there in Israel to be able to buy the animal for the sacrifice. Uh, so that all would have been going on, uh, animals there. One person compared this to the scene of chaos one finds at stock exchanges. Has anyone ever been to one of these before? I've never been. I see a few hands. Uh, I understand that they are chaotic messes. People are hollering and screaming, buying and selling stocks and such as that. I've seen it on TV, but that's all. But you can see it's a crowd of folks. So someone has said, though, that the temple courts that they must have seemed like a stock exchange with livestock pandemonium is going on here. But it's sort of like this. To, to adapt a recent commercial, it's sort of like a, a guy who's gone to a ball game and he uh, wants to get some popcorn and he's just very impressed with the guy who's hawking the popcorn and peanuts and because uh, all he has to do is uh, you know, hand over his money, he doesn't have to get out of his seat or anything and there he gets what he wants. And he, he muses, boy, wouldn't it be great to have this guy everywhere I went? so then he sort of imagines what that would be like, and he sees himself at an important business meeting, and all of a sudden you hear, popcorn, peanuts. Then he's at a funeral. Get your popcorn right here. You know, it doesn't work too well there. 
Sometimes things, no matter how great they might seem, are just inappropriate in certain places, right? And that's what's going on here. Those things weren't really in and of themselves bad or wrong, but they were in the wrong place. Shouldn't have been happening in the temple. As Jesus taught himself in verse 17, he quotes uh, basically two Old Testament passages. As he taught them, he said, and this is what he does after he does all this cleansing and kicking over of tables, he then teaches them, which is really interesting. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And by quoting these two passages, Jesus really does mean his house. When he says, my house, it is my house. I'm the king and I have showed up and this is my house and you are desecrating it. Because you're doing things that, while okay in themselves, are not supposed to happen here. This is a place of prayer. How can people come and pray to me with all this chaos going on? And perhaps even worse, well, it's like a, instead of a house of prayer, a shopping mall at Christmas. Perhaps even worse, it seems, though, the temple has become a place for the worship of money and merchandise rather than the worship of God. As I said, Jesus came to pick a fight. And if you want to see Jesus get upset, get in between him and his people. Keep people from having access to him. And you see Jesus' mama bear claws come out. And that's what happens here. As I said, he came to pick a fight. And he means to win that fight. And he means to win. And what he's going to get is you. You and me. Because of the things that were in the way of that, he's going to take them out, so to speak. And when God is working his plan, he is working his plan, and he's largely working his plan with you in mind. In the temple, he cleared away all the men and money and merchandise that were keeping people from having access to him in prayer. But even more significantly and more eternally, By the end of the week, he defeats what really keeps us from having access to him, and that's our own sin. Our own sin. For on the cross, he gives it a hammer blow, which it will never recover from. For there on the cross, sin is paid for, death loses its sting, and the schemes of Satan against us are overthrown. Jesus showed up this day to pick a fight, and he meant to win it. And he meant to do it for his Father's glory, and again, for our salvation. So the question is, though, is Jesus your king? He is the king, but have you made him king in your own heart? That's what faith really is. Faith is making Jesus your king. It's saying to him, I'm tired of pretending that I'm the king. It doesn't work very well when you're trying to live life that way. And Lord, I've neither loved you nor sought your glory, but I've loved myself and sought my glory. Thank you for what you did for me in your life, in your death, in your resurrection. Please forgive me and take charge of my life. Help me to make your plan my plan. Be my Savior and King. That's what it means to become a Christian, to make Jesus your King. And being a Christian is living that out every day. It's not a one-time thing that you do. It is every day making Christ the King and Lord and Savior of your life. And maybe an appropriate response on our part today, for those of us who are Christians already, would be to pick a fight ourselves. 
if Christ did so much to pick a fight and to clear away the rubble and all the things that get away from our relationship with him, from our opportunities to pray to him, maybe we need to pick a fight against the things that are in the way in our own lives, like the busyness. That we say, we, I just love to spend time with Jesus, but I'm so busy. Or the entertainment, uh, I, I would spend time with Jesus, but now I'm so tired, so I just need to turn the TV on and veg or surf the net or whatever. Or just the plain indifference towards him that keep us from accessing him and building on that relationship with him. Maybe it's time for us to pick a fight against all of that and by Christ's help, clear it away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us, for the way that you cared enough about us that even when we were your enemies, you sent your son to us to die for us. We celebrate this in such a special way at Christmas. What an amazing thing, Lord Jesus, that you would even come to this place of sin and misery and woe to live here, to be one of us that you might work out your plan to save us. So Lord, we thank you for all that you did. Uh, We know that it was more than simply an inconvenience. You came here and there were people who wanted to kill you and indeed they did. And Father, it was our sins as much as anything that nailed you to that cross. But you came anyway and you paid the price. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for it. Our, Our hearts well up with love for you. Enable us to follow you and to make you king each and every day of our lives that you might be glorified in Christ's name we pray.